Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Well, good morning, NC4. Greetings from the UK. Thank you for joining us online this morning. The Lord, over the past year, has really been taking NC4 on a trajectory of reviving unity and love. And we're pursuing this short series called Being of One Accord, which is a reference back to Acts chapter 2, where it talks about the church being all together in one accord. And it's important as we go through this, this season that we're in to carry on on that same trajectory. And so I want to address a topic today that's a particular threat to our unity, which is controversy. We seem to live in an age of controversy, and that was true before the pandemic. It's certainly true as we go through the pandemic. And I believe this is a really important discipleship issue because living as we do in that age of controversy where it seems like we're facing political, social divisions in an in a, in a increasingly um, uh, divided way, we need to know how to confront these controversies Christianly. And so we're going to read from the second letter of Timothy, chapter 2, and we're going to look at these questions. What kinds of controversies should we engage with? How should we engage them? And what is the motivation for engaging them in that way? So it's the what, the how, and the why. So as we read this passage, picture the Apostle Paul writing from prison near the end of his life. He's probably awaiting execution in, in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy, who was a young pastor in Ephesus. And Timothy, of course, was Paul's beloved protege. And Paul's really writing his farewell address to Timothy. And so he's leaving him with his final wisdom on his calling, on who he's meant to be, how he's meant to act in Christ as a leader and as a disciple. So we're going to read, it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the first question we want to address today is, what kinds of controversies should we engage with? Now you'll notice that the passage doesn't say that we should avoid all controversy. Clearly, Jesus was controversial in calling out hypocrisy, and Paul was controversial in calling out Peter and, and false teaching. So it's not that we're meant to avoid all controversy. I want to look at this question as the passage does, firstly by looking at what kinds of controversies should we not engage. So some people have called the age that we're living in the post-truth age, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion 
and personal beliefs. One reason for that, I think, is that there's been a massive erosion of trust in leaders and public institutions. And so we're also living in the internet age. It's a, it's a democratizing effect of the internet. And we live in the information age, and at the same time, it's also the misinformation age. And so I want to address one particular effect of this, because one of the results of, of these currents is that conspiracy theories that used to be kind of a, a fringe obsession have pretty much become mainstream in our society. Now, a conspiracy is a theory that explains something as a result of a secret plot by powerful conspirators. So, how do we deal with conspiracy theories as believers? Now, I remember when I first went to college and I had a lot of uh, time on my hands, and uh, I spent, um, spent some of those days watching internet documentaries uh, about what really happened at 9-11 and uh, the, the Illuminati that is secretly controlling the world and, you know, the Kennedy assassination. And so I, I can tell you from experience the allure, the fascination that these kinds of theories have. Because what they offer is secret knowledge that once you're let in on it, you'll somehow be free, you'll somehow be enlightened, which it if you think about it, it's a little bit ironic because Illuminati means the enlightened ones. But the interesting thing is that history tells us pandemics go hand in hand with conspiracy theories. And this pandemic we're going through is no exception. In fact, it's been quite a fruitful season for uh, uh, conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories thrive in times where we feel powerless because they... They claim to offer overarching explanations to help make sense of things. They claim to offer ready-made enemies to, to, to pin the blame on. But what I want to highlight for us today is that there's some really serious things for us to consider as Christians when it comes to this, when it comes to this mode of thinking, which is really what it is. And, and what I'm saying is that it's, it's, more, it's about more than even just the theories themselves. It's actually about the worldview that they encourage. And so that worldview has some pretty fundamental clashes with a biblical worldview. Now, let me, let me try and explain this. So conspiratorial thinking, the thinking that leads to conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories, conspiratorial thinking is based on a foundation of suspicion. That's the essential stance. And so the outcome of that is that it naturally assumes the worst. It takes a, a victim's perspective that anything that, that happens that's bad must necessarily have been planned and intentional. And so it really leads to an essentially negative view of life and the way the world works. Now, the biblical worldview, in contrast to that, is based on trust. It's based on this thing called faith. And it's an essential trust that ultimate reality is good. Because ultimate reality is a person. 
Ultimate reality is good, loving, and has our best at heart because ultimate reality is an all-powerful, all-loving person, our creator God, who made everything for his glory, which is our good. And so those two foundations are opposed. Well, you might say in response to that, well, Ian, are you saying that we should just blindly accept everything that we uh, that we see everything that authorities tell us, we should just, you know, blindly trust it. I'm saying, no, of course not. Conspiracies really do happen. Um, I, <laughs> real life cover-ups are exposed all the time. And we do have a duty to investigate the truth, to, to, uh, to find out what's really happening. We, we shouldn't simply assume that everyone always has the public's interests at heart because there is this little thing called sin. And so Jesus said, be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. And there's a huge difference between a worldview that takes suspicion as its foundation versus a worldview that has faith and trust at its foundation. So how do we discern the difference? How can we be wise about this? Well, the passage actually hints at some essential tools that will help us to be able to discern what to engage with and what not to. So Paul tells us pretty plainly in verse 23, he says, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. And so that highlights thought and knowledge. The word translated foolish here in Greek is is an expression of faulty thinking. It's actually, unfortunately, the word we get moron from, or moronic. And so, ignorance, the second word that he uses, means a lack of knowledge. And the original word here, it meant uninformed or not based on learning. And so, what this tells us is two very important, very practical things. Beware of controversies that involve faulty thinking and uninformed claims. So, thinking well is a skill. And most of the time, I feel like we're being told so much what to think that we forget to learn how to think. And what's really important is learning to... learning what a good argument actually is. And I, I think... Uh, especially as parents, it's really important to teach our kids what is good thinking, to think critically. And so we have to be aware of accepting something just because it confirms what we already believe or the way we feel about something. Those are persuasive arguments, but they're actually not valid arguments. They're not good arguments. And then the second thing is knowledge. If something is controversial, it's all the more important to check the facts, to check them independently from trusted sources. So if you come across something potentially controversial, there's some really good questions to ask. You might come across this thing and you say, well, this is saying something pretty strong. The first thing is to check the thinking. Do I notice any bad arguments here? Any political motivations? 
whether or not they're my own political motivations. Is this believable or is this sensationalism? Secondly, check the knowledge. Is this based on knowledge or conjecture? Is this a trusted source? Does the writer speak from knowledge? Does the writer write in an appropriate style? So these are all things that actually help us distinguish between real news and fake news. But, you know, we could do a whole class, a whole series of classes on this. But the point I want to make here is that wherever you, wherever you confront something controversial that might be based on bad thinking, it might be based on a lack of information, be very careful before you engage in it. Check the thinking. Check the sources. And if it might be lacking in those things, simply don't share it. Now, the problem goes a little bit beyond that because there's actually more of a relational problem that these days we disagree more maybe than ever on what, on what constitutes actual good thinking or actual facts. So thankfully, there's a further test that Paul mentions that helps us distinguish those moments as well. And it's the test of love. Look at the fruit of engaging in this particular controversy. Is it loving? So Paul says you can recognize them because they breed quarrels. In verse 14 of the same chapter, it says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In 1 Timothy 6, chapter 4, it says, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, these types of controversies produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Now, does that sound like any Facebook comment sections that you may have seen recently? <laughs> we need to be extremely careful with these things. Why? Because they have effects on real people. People made in the image of God whom God loves. Don't forget, especially that in, in, in powerless times, the world is vulnerable to these kinds of foolish and ignorant controversies. And, and actually, these types of things have contributed to some of the greatest evils in history. Don't forget that the Holocaust was caused partially by centuries-old foolish, ignorant, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which, by the way, are alive and well today. Now, that might seem a little bit dramatic, but even on a smaller scale, these controversies damage our unity, they damage our love for one another, and so they damage our witness to a watching world. So, Christians, here's our reminder, as Paul says. He says, remind them. So here's the reminder. We need to be the ones who refuse to contribute to the types of controversies that do nothing but breed quarrels, that do nothing to build people up, but only tear them down, that naturally end up in nothing but envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion. Now, for some things, that means not getting into them at all. For other things, it means choosing a better time and place to discuss them. So some conversations need to be had 
one-to-one rather than in a public setting. Certain conversations you just shouldn't have over text. You shouldn't have over social media because the more impersonal the form of communication, the, more, the higher the likelihood that we treat each other impersonally. We treat each other less uh, than a full person. And so if you find yourself in a conversation online that's quickly spiraling downwards into arguments and accusations, it's an indication that maybe it's time to drop it. Maybe it's time to pick up the phone and talk to your brother and sister in Christ. Because the world is watching. And that type of thing doesn't build anybody up, and it doesn't reflect well on the one we serve. So, I'm not saying that Paul here was writing specifically about conspiracy theories, but I think this does apply to this, and it applies to many other topics of controversy that we encounter on a daily basis. And it doesn't mean that we should never enter into controversy, but it does mean exemplifying a different form of dialogue, a different kind of discourse. And so that brings us to our second point, which is how are we to engage in controversial topics when we need to? So Paul says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So how do we go about engaging controversial questions? Well, it's not simply avoiding and just burying all disagreements and refusing to talk about them. The answer is the way of Christ, of kindness, of understanding, of patience and gentleness. How often do we see that? (laughs) How countercultural is that in our setting? But that's the spirit that we're called to operate in. And if you want an example of what that looks like, I really believe the the best example I know of was Rabbi Zacharias, who the, the world has been mourning as he passed away this week. Ravi was probably the world's best known public Christian thinker. He was an evangelist, an apologist who dedicated his life, as he said, to helping the believer think and the thinker believe. He defended and commended the faith in 70 different countries and at many of the world's top institutions, including Harvard and Oxford and the UN several times and and, and many, many more places. And he authored 30 books. He had radio shows. He did uh, uh, teaching curricula. And he founded a training school in Oxford where Selene and I were able to train with him and his team for a year. And so that was a time that deeply impacted our lives. It really shaped us and set us on a course in ministry that uh, awakened things that we didn't even know were there. The reason, part, <laughs> a main part of the reason why I'm a pastor today I owe to that time. And so we were training in Oxford under some of the the great Christian thinkers of our time, but one of the most impacting moments that we remember was the day that we were able to meet Ravi as a class. Now, we knew him by reputation. We knew his resume. We knew his intellectual rigor. But 
What was the most impacting thing about that experience wasn't just what he had to share. It was his presence, his character. And the way he treated us, the way he dignified us as students, the, the, the compassion, the concern, the, 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 the humility that he treated us with. And now as I read his, his obituaries and, and uh, the, the things that people are pouring out in tribute to him, I realize that that's, that's how he treated everybody that he came across. CNN's obituary of him said that Ravi saw that people weren't logical problems waiting to be solved. They were people who needed the person of Christ. Those who knew him well will remember him first for his kindness, gentleness, and generosity of spirit. The love and kindness he had come to know in and through Jesus Christ was the same love he wanted to share with all he met. What a shining example of exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage. At Billy Graham's funeral, Ravi said these words. He said, a great voice has been lost, but the message lives on. So. Ravi's voice will be missed. But I pray that many more would stand on his shoulders and continue to commend that message in the same spirit in which he delivered it. So what Paul says to us and, and what I believe Ravi exemplifies for us is that when it comes to engaging with controversial topics, we not only look at technique, we not only look at knowledge and, and, and wisdom, but we need to look at our own character. So, of course, there are techniques. We need to do our best to truly understand whatever it is that we're trying to engage with. Paul says that the Lord's servant should be able to teach. Now, that applies to church leaders, of course, especially, but the Lord's servant is any Christian as well. And so every Christian is a servant of Christ. We're called to make disciples. And so it's very hard to share a gospel that you yourself don't understand. It's very hard to gently correct somebody if you don't know how to arrive at the right answer yourself. And so thinking is important. Study is important. And we're called to love God with all of our mind. Not someone else's mind, not Ravi's mind, because he was pretty uniquely brilliant, but love him with the mind that God gave you. And so, there is understanding, there is technique, but even beyond that, even more important than that, is our character. Too often, we can pay attention to the ideas, we can pay attention to the understanding and the techniques of sharing the gospel, but we neglect our own character. And so don't just pay attention to understanding and, and being right and knowing the right answers, but pay attention to your character because our character speaks more than our words. As Paul says, look at your kindness. Look at your patience. Look at your gentleness. And if you embody the kindness of Christ, if you embody the patience of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, what you're going to find is you're able to dialogue 
in such a way, even with controversial questions, you're able to dialogue in such a way that doesn't breach love. In such a way that treats people as they deserve to be treated, that not only answers questions, but addresses itself to the questioner. And so, what I want to end on, uh, end reflecting on, is what is the motivation for why we're called to engage this way? Because some people will say, Ian, this is, I hear what you're saying, sounds nice, but this is a little bit naive, don't you think? That's not going to get you ahead in the world. It's, it's too trusting. It's too nice. And isn't it time that Christians stood up for themselves, that stood up for truth? And what about all the other people and media outlets that don't play fair, don't speak kindly and gently? How are we meant to stand up for ourselves? Well, Paul ends this passage this way. He says, effectively, the Lord's servant should be like this, should approach controversy like this, because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This gives us the why behind the what and the how. The reason that we're not to engage in foolish and ignorant controversies, and the reason why, should, why we should go about the ones that we do engage with in a certain way is there's three things. Firstly, loving people is our goal. It's never just about winning arguments. It's about winning people. And God cares about people in these controversies. God, remember, sent his son to die for the world that he loved. And so we have to remember that in no, no matter what controversy we, we, we uh, engage in, we do it for the sake of love towards people, that they're human beings that Jesus died for. And that applies to everyone that we come in contact with, let alone our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so God wants them to be won over and come to a knowledge of the truth. All our conversations should be aimed at winning people to Christ, not just winning the argument. So secondly, Satan is the real enemy. This passage tells us that the ultimate enemy that ensnares the world in, in false ways of thinking, that ensnares the world in, in uh, enslaves the world into false ways of being and acting. It's not ultimately corporations. It's not government. It's not the deep state. It's not elites. It's not the media. It's not capitalism or communism. It's not any other ism. It's the Satan, the enemy, the devil, the, the great accuser, the enemy of God, the enemy of our souls, the enemy of God's purposes. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, it says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the media. No, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The evil we see in the world simply doesn't make sense. 
You can't account for what we see, the chaos, the, the, the disintegration. You can't account for it in merely human terms. You can't make sense of it without supernatural evil at work. And so we have to remember the original conspiracy theory was in the garden. He essentially said, Eve, there's a secret plot in heaven. God is out to deceive your mind, to manipulate you, to keep you in submission. And so here's a secret, a secret piece of knowledge by which you'll be enlightened. It's, it's no... Uh, it's no coincidence that the, the fruit was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's a secret by which you'll be enlightened, by which you'll be able to escape that oppression. So this is quite literally the oldest trick in the book. We have to see it for what it is. We don't need secret cabals of powerful people to explain evil because we know that there's a very real, very powerful enemy. And he's a spiritual enemy. So it's not people. It's principalities. It's the prince of the power of the air, as it says in Scripture. So, first of all, loving people is our goal. Second of all, Satan is the real enemy. And thirdly, and lastly, what this passage reminds us is that the conspiracy that we should be most concerned with is God's conspiracy the divine conspiracy. Because God is secretly, discreetly at work in the world, subverting evil for good. What do you think the cross was about? God took all the, the, the conspiracy of every supernatural evil force to put the Son of God on the cross, the worst evil act in all of history, and God flips it on its head to become the greatest act of love in all eternity. And that was a moment where a divine conspiracy was let loose on the earth. And so, this is the work of God. The passage says that God is the one who grants repentance. And so, we, we carry ourselves in, in controversy in this way because it says that God is the one that brings the repentance. And the, the word repentance, literally in Greek, it is change of mind. God is the one that ultimately changes people's minds and puts them onto the track of the knowledge of truth. And here's the thing, we don't need to be enlightened to the true secret reality of the world. Why? Because God has already revealed it to us in Christ. Remember the words of Ephesians 3 that say, Christ brought to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is up to something much bigger than the devil could ever hope to achieve. And because we're partners with him in that, we don't need to bother with the distractions that make us obsess and fear over evil and mistrust everything and everyone around us and disrupt our unity and our love along the way. 
We're free in Christ to be kind to everyone. Free to teach without pride. Free to be patient, even in the face of slander or suffering. We're free to be gentle, even with those who oppose us in our message. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are at work in the world. That we don't need to be caught up in fear. Lord, that we can live a life of trust. That your universe is perfectly safe for us to be in. Why? Because nothing on earth can separate us from your love. No conspiracy by man or Satan could separate us from the love of God. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to refrain from entering into foolish and ignorant controversies, wherever they may come from. Lord, that you give us the wisdom to be able to spot them. Lord, that you would give us the boldness to enter into the, the controversies that are motivated by love. Lord, that you would make us like yourself, kind, able to teach, to patiently endure any suffering that comes our way and able to correct even our opponents with gentleness. Help us do this, Lord, out of love for you, love for people, out of disdain for the enemy's plans. Lord, and out of trust that you are in control and you are bringing about the, the overcoming of all evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may be tuning in today and you have never committed your life yet to Jesus to join his grand divine conspiracy. And I want to invite you now and give you an opportunity that you can do that. You can uh, follow this simple prayer that I'm going to pray with you right now. And this is just a prayer of commitment. It's a prayer of offering yourself to Jesus. And so if that's you, I'd like you to pray these words with me. Lord Jesus, Forgive me for the sin in my life, the ways that I have turned away from you. Thank you that you died for me, that you went to the cross so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be set free. Thank you that you rose from the dead so that I could have new life. I commit myself to you right now. Please give me your Holy Spirit that I would be a new person. I want to live my life from now on, walking with you. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or, or maybe uh, a, a recommitment, I want you to stick around to the very end of this broadcast because we want to share some information with you on how we can help you in that journey. This is a journey to walk together. And so please stay tuned to the end. And thank you for listening, for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610 816 
6062.